0: Do you want to listen ad-free? You can do that now by joining our Patreon or hitting that subscription button on Apple Podcast. Spotify listeners, we've got you too. All you got to do is in your Spotify app, search The Murder Diaries ad-free. Welcome back to another episode of The Murder Diaries podcast. I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. On June 27th, 1995, 27-year-old news anchor Jody Husentru was supposed to be at the news station at 3 a.m., when Jodi wasn't there by 4 a.m., the producer called Jodi and woke her up. Jodi said she had overslept and would be in ASAP. When Jodi still hadn't shown up for the 6 a.m. newscast, the producer filled in the hour show. When the newscast was over, the producer asked a co-worker to call the police to do a welfare check. When police arrived at Jodi's apartment complex, they saw signs of a struggle in the parking lot. It was pretty obvious Jodi had been abducted. To this day, police have never named any suspects or made any arrests in Jody's case. Her body has never been found, although she was declared legally dead in 2001. This is her story. You still think it's in my head, but
1: I'm walking
0: with the dead. Jody Sue Husentru was born June 5, 1968, in Long Prairie, Minnesota, to her parents, Maurice and Imogene. In 1990, Jody graduated with a bachelor's degree in TV broadcasting and speech communication from St. Cloud State University. She went on to work as a broadcaster for KGAN-TV in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Jody then went on to work for KSAX-TV in Alexandria, Minnesota. Finally, Jody went on to work for KIMT-TV in Mason City, Iowa. At the time of her disappearance, Jody was still a news anchor for KIMT-TV. Her apartment was only a five-minute drive from the station. According to a producer at KIMT-TV, Jody's shift at the station began at 3 a.m. And she'd usually work until 12.30 p.m. or 1 p.m. The producer goes on to say that Jodi was often late to work, around maybe like once a week she would be late. When that would happen, this producer would call Jodi and wake her up. Within about 20 minutes, Jodi would arrive at work. Again, she was often late, but she never missed a newscast. At the time of her disappearance, Jodi was hoping to get a job at Twin Cities Television Station. This was a bigger news market. It's not that she didn't love her job at KIMT-TV, but Twin Cities was a larger news market, and it was closer to her hometown. We'll talk more about this later. According to Jody's sister Joanne, Jody was, quote, "the type of gal where everybody took to her. She had the most beautiful personality. When she walked into a room, she really did light up. Joanne went on further to say that Jody was a little naive. She was trusting and maybe sometimes a little too nice. She would always see the good in people. In her spare time, Jody loved to golf. At the time of her disappearance, she was actually on a team with two local businessmen and another coworker. On multiple occasions leading up to Jody's disappearance, she did voice concerns that she was being followed.
1: For example, on October 8th, 1994, at 6.44 p.m., Jody called the Mason City Police from her apartment and reported that a person in a small, newer, white truck was following her. Unfortunately, the truck and the driver have never been identified to this day.
0: According to the responding officer, Jody, quote, had asked about different things she could do to guard her safety, such as carrying mace, and I gave her some advice on things that she could do. She was out walking with a friend and she said somebody drove by and stared at her awful hard, and it made her nervous. According to police records, this is the only time that Jody called the police about a possible stalker. Not long after, Jody started taking self-defense classes. On separate occasions, Jodi also went on to tell her sister Joanne, some friends, and a self-defense instructor that she thought she might be being followed. According to findjodi.com, Jodi would have been easy to stalk. Her home address, apartment unit, and phone number were listed in the public Mason City phone directory. Jodi had lived in her apartment, which, by the way, faced the parking lot, since November of 1993. She also had the same work schedule every day and frequently talked about her social and community event plans when she was delivering the news. Jody spent the weekend before she went missing with several friends water skiing in Iowa City. She returned from this water skiing trip June 25, 1995 and included in the friends that she spent time with on this trip were her friends, John, Tammy, and Ani. The group had also stayed with John's college age son. John was around 20 years older than Jodi. They met the year before in 1994 when they were both living in the same apartment complex, the key apartments. John seemed to really like Jodi. He hosted a surprise birthday party for her on June 10th, 1995, and he named his boat after her. John said that he named his boat after Jodi because she'd been such a big part of his life at that time. And she just, quote, made him feel so good. According to Tammy, Jody was spending more and more time with John, more than she was spending with anyone else. But Jody made sure to make it clear that they were absolutely not involved. Jody's sister Joanne did say though that Jody did think John was interested in her. Though again, nothing supposedly was going on between the two romantically. The next day after her arrival, June 26, from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., Jody anchored the morning news. At 9 a.m., Jody attended the annual Mason City Chamber of Commerce golf tournament fundraiser. This was held locally at the Mason City Country Club. Jody and her team played in the tournament for a while, but then it started raining. After socializing a bit in the clubhouse, Jody went home and changed into some dry clothes. At around 3:30 p.m., Jody went back to the country club. She then socialized some more and attended an awards dinner at the club. Two of Jody's golf team members later said that during the dinner, Jodi mentioned she'd been getting annoying, quote, nasty, and, quote, naughty phone calls, and she was planning to change her phone number the next day. At around 8 p.m., Jodi headed home. At 8.24 p.m., she called her friend Kelly in Mississippi. Kelly wasn't home, so Jodi briefly spoke to Kelly's husband. Remember, this is the mid-90s, so this is... Jody calling Kelly's landline at her home and this is long distance. Kelly's husband later said that during the call Jody seemed cheerful and not worried. What Jody did for the rest of the evening isn't really known. Jody's friend John, the same one we mentioned earlier, told police that Jody stopped by his home that evening. They watched a videotape of the surprise 27th birthday party that he had hosted for her earlier that month. They then talked about the party and the water skiing trip, and then Jodi got in her car and went home. John says that's the last time he saw her. The next day, Tuesday, June 27th, Jodi was supposed to be at work at 3 a.m. so she could anchor the 6 a.m. news. When Jodi didn't show up by 4 a.m., the producer called Jodi and woke her up. Jodi said that she had overslept and she would be right in as soon as she could. The producer later said that everything sounded okay and normal when they spoke on the phone. However, we now know that Jody never arrived at the station. At 5 a.m., the producer tried to reach Jody again, but this time Jody didn't answer. The producer continued to prepare for the 6 a.m. show, and when Jody didn't show up by 6 a.m., the producer sat in for Jody and anchored the hour-long newscast. At 7 a.m. when the newscast was over, Amy asked a co-worker to call police and have them check on Jodi. Police arrived at Jodi's apartment complex at 7.16 a.m. They found Jodi's 1991 Mazda Miata still in the parking lot. It was just 12 feet from Jodi's building. I remember her apartment complex faced the parking lot. There was clear evidence of a struggle. There were drag marks on the pavement from Jody's shoes, a bent car key was near her car, and Jody's red high heels, blow dryer, hairspray, and earrings were all scattered around the parking lot.
1: Now, according to Jody's close friend Tammy, Jodi would have had a purse and a briefcase containing notebooks with her. If she did have them, those items were never found. <laughs> Brian Vladek Hassel, a former Marine who disappeared in November 2021, cared deeply for the unhoused community. And in an effort to commemorate Vladek's spirit of kindness on World Kindness Day, which is November 14th, and to raise awareness about his ongoing disappearance, several podcasts, including us here at the Murder Diaries, Navigating Advocacy Podcasts, and Moms and Mysteries, are joining forces to host a fundraising event. This event will provide essential items to the unhoused population in multiple cities across the nation. Paige and I have chosen the unhoused community in Los Angeles, California. So who was Brian? Brian Hassel, affectionately known as Vladik, was warm and outgoing. He's been described as the friendliest person you'll ever meet. His infectious enthusiasm for connecting with people is a defining trait. He's always eager to strike up conversations with strangers and listen to their stories. Whether you crossed paths with him on the street or shared a moment in the coffee shop, Vladik's genuine interest in others was palpable. He believed in the power of human connections and if given the chance, would eagerly offer his help to anyone in need. Vladek's absence has left a void in the hearts of all who know him, a testament to the deep impact he's had on those lucky enough to call him a friend. Vladek was last seen on CCTV and body camera footage at Foxtel Coffee Co. on University Boulevard in Orlando on November 6, 2021. The last confirmed encounter with Vladek took place at his apartment complex, the place at Alafaya, on November 15, 2021. Unfortunately, no new information regarding his whereabouts has surfaced since that time, exactly two years ago. The fundraiser serves a dual purpose it aims to assist the unhoused community by providing them with essential items while simultaneously drawing attention to Vladik Hassel's disappearance and the ongoing search efforts to find him. The primary objective is to distribute a minimum of 50 drawstring bags filled with essential supplies in each city on November 14th, World Kindness Day. These bags will contain items such as deodorant, toothbrushes, and toothpaste, bottled water, winter gloves, hand warmers, protein snacks, and so much more, including a picture of Vladik. Remarkably, each bag costs less than $16. So if you're asking yourself how you can get involved and make a difference, I'm gonna tell you. Step one, donate to our cause. For less than $16, a complete care package can be delivered to someone in need. Every contribution, no matter how big or small, will help us reach our goal and provide much needed supplies to those in need. Your kindness can go a long way. Step two, spread the word. Share this clip, tell your friends, and let's create a wave of kindness and generosity together. The more supporters we have, the greater our impact will be. Click the link in our show notes to head to our PayPal and make a donation today. Let's show the world the power of kindness within the true crime community. Together, we can make a tangible difference.
0: Police were able to get a partial palm print off the Miata. They were also able to get a strand of hair. This is the only physical evidence police found, though, and they aren't even sure if the evidence is linked to Jody's disappearance. When responding, police, of course, went to check in on Jody's second-floor apartment. There were no signs of a struggle there. Police then spoke with the neighbors. Some said that they had heard a scream around 4.30 a.m., but no one had called the police. A man who lived up the street from Jody's apartment told police that he saw a white van, possibly a mid-1980s Ford Econoline in the parking lot as he drove to work around 4.30 a.m. The man said that he noticed the van because its lights were on. He thought maybe it was a police officer. The van was parked in the front of the apartment complex in a way that no other cars could get around it. This van has never been found. While the police were still at Jody's, John showed up. This is when he tells police that Jody had stopped by his place the night before to watch the surprise party video. John also told police at this time about the water skiing trip that he and Jody and some friends had enjoyed the previous weekend. Police rightfully asked for him to go ahead and bring the surprise party video by the station later that day. The police believe that Jody was abducted as she went to her car. While she was unlocking the car, that's when they think that Jody was attacked. What police didn't know and wanted to find out was, was she abducted by somebody she knew? Had she been targeted by a stalker who had seen her doing her newscasts on TV? Had she been the victim of an impulse attack? All of these were still possibilities. Initially, police thought the person who abducted Jody had stalked her previously, but as the years passed, police seemed less confident in that theory. In 2011, Lieutenant Frank Stearns told HLN an obsessive fan. Would they wait around an extra hour hiding behind a garbage dumpster and possibly being seen? I don't feel they would. We've got nothing showing here there was a stalker. No gifts, no cards, no phone calls. Another theory revolves around a drug ring in Mason City. Jody had reported on the drug ring, and some theorized that Jody got too close and was killed but police and Jody's coworkers at this time think that that theory is more far-fetched. Within hours of police showing up to Jody's apartment, the search teams were established. The immediate area was searched. The park next to the apartment complex was searched, as well as the Winnebago River that runs through that park. Unfortunately, it was raining that day, which made things really difficult and could easily have compromised any evidence that they would have been able to find. The search was later expanded and went farther and farther away from Jody's apartment. Police did end up interviewing John the same day that Jody went missing, and he said that that morning he was at home, and then at 6 a.m., his friend LaDonna called him on his landline. She was confirming their morning walk. He was then given a polygraph, and he provided palm prints. By 1998, John was living in Arizona, and he's always maintained his innocence, and Eventually, he refused to give interviews any longer to the media. Police spoke with LaDonna, and she told police that she did, in fact, call John at 6 a.m. that morning to confirm their morning walk. During the walk, John didn't seem anxious or anything. He even told LaDonna that morning that Jody had stopped by the evening before to watch the surprise birthday video. Inside her apartment, police found Jody's 84-page journal. She had began keeping a journal in January of 1994, She often wrote about her goals, ways she wanted to improve herself, and personal experiences. Not too far off from what you might expect. In late January 1994, Jodi wrote that she loved the news. She said she wanted to improve her career, make more money, communicate, and have more impact on a larger audience. Jodi also said that even though she wasn't where she wanted to be, she needed to give herself five years in the business. In March 1994, Jodi wrote that she was beginning a new career hunt. She wanted to work at a top 50 television station.
1: Several times Jody wrote about men. One day she wrote, why do I get hooked so fast? I'm lonely here at times and I would like to have someone to share my life with. Sure, I meet men, but none that really strikes me or who follows through. In March 1995, Jody wrote,
0: I'm starting fresh at work this week, getting up at 3 a.m., Best newscast in the world, top 10 market. I really think I'll market myself for Arizona, see what they think about my accent, or I'll move down there to produce. Jody's last three entries were from June 11th, 13th, and 25th of 1995. On Sunday, June 11th, Jody wrote, What a weekend surprise! My Mason City Clear Lake friends threw a big party for me at a lounge, wild. It was in Clear Lake. They had a 16-gallon cake, huge cake with a skier, so much left. John grilled 150 pork burgers. We were dancing on tables, dancing everywhere. Everyone had a ball. Video camera was rolling. Cameras were clicking. Oh, what fun. Life is so good. The party made me feel so good. On Tuesday, June 13th, Jody wrote, Last night, John and I went to the Glenn Miller Orchestra in Belmont. I have so many great viewers. People are so kind. This nice weather has me wild. I bought a new Mazda Miata. Simply love it. On Sunday, June twenty fifth, got home from a weekend road trip to Iowa City. Oh, we had fun. It was wild, partying and water skiing. We had skied at the Coralville Res. I'm improving on the skis. Hips up, lean, etc. John's son Trent gave me some great ski tip advice. Today, Sunday, it was raining in Mason City, so didn't get any skiing in. I love it. It's addicting. Great friends, but professionally, I'm fed up. It's difficult finding a new job, and I'm confused about agent and what to do. On June 28th, the FBI and Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation joined the investigation. By June 29th, investigators had interviewed more than 100 people, but there were no suspects. On July 2nd, helicopters were employed to search Mason City and the area southwest of it. The next day, on July 3rd, the police called off the ground and air search for Jody. They said that they'd keep investigating the case, though. By July 10th, police had more than 700 tips, but still no strong leads. By July 25th, more than 800 people had been interviewed, but there were no solid suspects still. On August 12th, special agent John Lang with the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation said that it seems like the abductor had been watching Jody and knew her routine. On September 8th, Jody's family announced that they hired a PI. The Mason City Police also continued to investigate leads. On September 23rd, Jody's case was featured on America's Most Wanted. After the airing, it led to 60 tips, but still, shocker here, I'm gonna say it again, no strong leads. Three months after Jody's disappearance, a man named Thomas became a suspect. Thomas was a three-time convicted sex offender. He traveled around Southern South Dakota and Northern Iowa, looking for windows and hiring sex workers to spend time with him in his van. His van was described as being a, quote, poor man's porn palace. There were condoms, porn, jars of Vaseline, and more stuff that I don't even want to list. Police searched Thomas's van, but no evidence was linked to Jody. Police also searched a friend of Thomas's farmland, but they found no evidence there either. They got a palm print off Thomas, but it didn't match the one that was on Jody's Mazda, so he was ruled out as a suspect. In an odd turn of events, five years later during a psych eval, Thomas bragged about being a suspect in Jody's disappearance. On November 13th, 1995, members of Jody's family flew to California and taped a session with three psychics for the show called Psychic Detectives. The psychics said that Jody's abductor was someone who saw her on TV and became obsessed with her. The psychics didn't have any information besides that that could help them identify the suspect. On December 9th, it was announced that a search near two Mason City area dams found nothing. On February 18, 1996, Jody's case was featured on Unsolved Mysteries. This airing led to almost 100 tips, but again, no strong leads. On May 4, 1996, around 100 people searched northeast Cerro Gordo County's countryside. They left flags to mark anything they thought was suspicious. Police checked these flags, but didn't find anything that was considered evidence. In 1997, a man named Tony Jackson was arrested and charged with several counts of sexual assault in the Twin Cities area. Minnesota police learned that Tony had once lived in Mason City, so they contacted Mason City police. It was found that Tony lived just two blocks from KIMT-TV when Jody disappeared. The week before Jody went missing, Tony's girlfriend, who looked a lot like Jody, broke up with him. On top of that, a cellmate told police that Tony had written a rap about what happened to Jody. One of the lyrics in the rap said, Stiff in Tiffin, referring to Tiffin, Iowa. So police went to Tiffin and talked to a farmer there. They asked where someone might dump a body. He told them about an abandoned silo, so police went and searched it, but they
1: found nothing. Here's the thing, though. Tony was ruled out as a suspect. That's because police said it's highly unlikely he could have been involved based on what he was doing the day Jody disappeared. And now a word from today's sponsor.
0: We all know sleep is important. It's literally the foundation of our mental and physical health. Obviously that all plays into how we can perform throughout our busy days. It's so important to have a consistent nighttime routine. It's honestly kind of a non-negotiable. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't get enough sleep though. Did you know that less than six to seven hours per night is linked to reduced white blood cell count? And those white blood cells are our army that protect us against illness, diseases, fighting viruses, bacteria, and more. If that wasn't enough, poor sleep is also known to lead towards weight gain, mood issues, and poor mental health. I know all of that that I just listed completely applies to me when I'm not getting enough sleep. We want to introduce to you Beam's Dream Powder. It's their best-selling healthy hot cocoa for sleep. It tastes amazing with no sugar added. It's available in amazing flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon, cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Say no more. Might sound cliche, but I have to say it, Better Sleep has never tasted better. Beam's Dream Powder is a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed, the magical trifecta. Some of you may know this about me. I love numbers, so here's the numbers. A recent clinical study revealed that Dream helps 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed and again, 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. All you have to do to enjoy Beam is mix it into hot water or your favorite milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. I like to enjoy Beam, especially on weeknights when I know I gotta get up and go to work in the morning. I know there's gonna be a lot on my mind of what I wanna try and get done the next day. It's just sometimes hard for me to turn my mind off. So Beam's dream definitely helps me do that. So I like to enjoy it a little bit before I brush my teeth and head to bed try Beam with me today and find out what not just me, but Forbes and New York Times are all talking about. Head over to shopbeam.com diaries and use code diaries at checkout to get 40% off. This is a limited time only for our listeners. So head over to shopbeam.com slash diaries and use code diaries for 40% off. In May of 2001, Jody was declared legally dead. In 2003, two Minnesota TV journalists, Josh and Gary, created the website findjody.com. Their goal was to keep Jody's case in the spotlight and for the website to serve as a clearinghouse for tips that might lead to Jody. Find Jody also has a podcast about her. In 2011, for the Find Jody podcast, Josh interviewed Amy, the producer that called Jody that morning. One of the questions that they asked Amy was, police say Jody went to them about being stalked and a white truck was mentioned. Did you ever know anything about someone stalking her? Did she ever tell you? Amy said that Jody had mentioned that she thought she was being followed once while she was rollerblading, but it never happened again. Jody wasn't that worried about it. It just creeped her out. Amy went on further to say that Josh's question about this was the first time that she had heard any mention of a white truck. She goes on to say in the podcast that she mostly had a business relationship with Jody. She was kind of in a bit of an assistant role when it came to production with Jody and she went on to kind of describe that she could never truly figure Jody out. They just they weren't close like that. Josh went on to ask Amy if anyone suspected any of their coworkers to be involved in Jody's disappearance. Amy was pretty clear that no, no one had ever suspected that. And Amy also went on to say that Jody had been really up and down before her disappearance. She would fall asleep in the edit bays, and then later in the day, she'd be super perky. So she wondered sometimes, again, what was going on with her. She couldn't really figure her out. In 2005, Jody's close Minnesota friends created a nonprofit called Jody's Network of Hope. The nonprofit hosts an annual golf tournament to honor Jodi and raise safety awareness. In 2008, a copy of Jody's journal was anonymously mailed to a reporter for the Globe Gazette in Mason City. Police investigated who sent this to the reporter, and they found out that it had been sent by the wife of the former Mason City Police Department chief. It should also be noted that the wife actually had previously worked for the newspaper as well, so no motive was necessarily given for why she ever sent the journal in, though. In December 16th, an Iowa state representative wrote a piece for the Northwest Iowa. He wrote about being a member of the House of the Public Safety Committee. He wrote, I was appalled at the number of cold cases in our state and the current lack of a cohesive effort to solve them. He went on to note that there used to be a cold case investigative team within the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations, but it was shut down due to budget issues. In 2015, that same representative circled a letter addressed to the city of Mason City asking them to recognize the 20th anniversary of Jody's disappearance and solicited them for help solving the case. All 100 state representatives signed the letter. Then Mason City area legislators offered to notify Mason police officials about the letter. Police Chief Lashbrook said that he didn't want the letter to be sent to him or to anybody else in Mason City. The mayor at the time agreed not to pass the letter on and, quote, vouched for what a wonderful job the chief had been doing and that he was close to retirement, so he didn't need this issue to come before the public and sully his record. The mayor begged the state representative to withdraw the letter. The mayor was worried that it was putting too much pressure on the chief. In his 2016 article, the state representative wrote the chief's mysterious reaction manifested through the mayor makes sense if the Mason City Police Department is mishandling this case. Indeed, I soon realized certain leads first filed in 2008 had been ignored for at least seven years. I spoke with the DIC director and he explained that due to the complexity of this case, the Mason City Police Department was supposedly notifying Iowa DCI of all leads since 1995. But for reasons unknown, the Mason City Police Department concealed the 2008 leads from the Iowa DCI until 2015. Ultimately, the state representative was assured that all leads would be investigated. However, under Iowa law, This case is under Mason City jurisdiction, and the DCI is only able to assist, and the DCI didn't have enough resources to do so. When a new police chief took over, that same state representative tried to speak with him, but that went nowhere. He wrote on in his 2016 article, Generally, I would not describe myself as a person who is untrusting, but I have this gut feeling that something is being covered up in Mason City. On March 2nd, 2017, a federal grand jury was held. Jody's friend John was subpoenaed and was ordered to provide finger and palm prints as well as a DNA swap. No indictments were handed down. 18 days later, Mason City Police obtained search warrants that allowed them to put GPS tracking devices on two of John's vehicles. It might be obvious, but I'll note it here. These are not the vehicles that John would have owned in 1995. The search warrant used to get the judge's approval has been sealed, but police have said that the GPS devices didn't lead them to anything helpful. In 2018, for Jody's 50th birthday, the Find Jody team put up three billboards in Mason City. Yes, this idea was inspired by the movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and the real-life case that that movie's based on. The billboards featured pictures of Jody and the words, Someone knows something. Is it you? The billboards gained CBS's attention, and in December 2018, the show 48 Hours released an episode on Jody. In 2019, John spoke to the media for the first time in a long time. He said that he emphatically and repeatedly denied any involvement in Jody's disappearance. John said that he'd been living in a suspended hell since 2005. He went on to say that he'd voluntarily agreed to undergo hypnosis to help police find Jody. In November 2020, CBS reported that the murder of Michelle Martinko in the parking lot of Cedar Rapids Westdale Mall has some eerie connections to the Who's in True case. What's interesting is that this case is older than Jody's case. It's from 1979, when then-18-year-old Michelle was getting into her car after shopping at the mall, someone attacked her, and a struggle ensued. In the end, Michelle had been stabbed and had about 30 knife wounds. Michelle's case went unsolved until 2018. Through genetic genealogy, police found Michelle's killer, Jerry Burns. He was convicted of first-degree murder, but police still had questions about Jerry. When they searched his computer after arresting him, they found, quote, a history of searches pertaining to nefarious subjects, including the murder of blonde women and pornographic matter involving blonde women. In his video with police right before he was arrested, Jerry brought up Jody's name, he said it was a big deal. I don't exactly remember what happened. Seen something about Jody Who's Intrute recently. Both women were pretty young, blonde, and in parking lots when they died. However, there's no evidence tying Jerry to Jody, and the Mason City Police won't say if they are going to look into Jerry as a suspect. A PI has been investigating Jody's disappearance since 2019 and has recently doubled the reward to $50,000 for information leading to the discovery of Jodi's remains as of September 2023. This was announced a few months after the anniversary of Jodi's disappearance, as well as what would have been her 55th birthday. The PI released a news report after announcing that $50,000 reward, stating, I am now extremely confident that multiple people know what happened to Jodi. Eventually, someone may decide to talk. We hope to encourage that possibility. At the time of her disappearance, Jodi was 5'3 to 5'4, 110 to 120 pounds, with blonde hair and brown eyes. Anyone with any information on Jodi's case can reach out to the Mason City Police Department at 641-421-3636. Information can also be provided to the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations, at dciinfo at dps.state.ia.us. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes.
1: Be sure to follow us on socials at The Murder Diaries Pod. And until next time, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death